Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock fans and rock musicians, analyze a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. And this is Mike Gavigan. And today we're going to be taking an in-depth look at Kiss Unmasked. Before we do that, we'd like to play a couple songs uh, that each of us have been involved in to let you know what, we, what we're up to in the rock world. John, what song would you like to play this week? Uh, I just got notification that on the Indie World Charts, which apparently has something to do with, uh, I don't know, in music, independent music around the world, at number 97 is the Ballad of Johnny Blowtorch by The Little Wretches. So I want to play the Ballad of Johnny Blowtorch. And see if other people like it, because apparently it's number 97 on the Indie World Charts, whatever that means. Awesome. For this week, I do yes, uh, because uh, a few of the songs on Unmasked are in what is known as an open G tuning. I thought it would be fun to uh, revisit the Dame Fortune song 
the edge uh, from the secret art since that uh, part of that uh, you know at least one of the guitars in that recording is uh, tuned in open G tuning as well cool so uh, that's you singing that one and uh, playing some tasty slide guitar and I wrote the lyrics and play some rhythm guitar yes indeed Kiss comes off the relatively unsuccessful Dynasty tour, uh, unsuccessful at least in the United States. 
they notice that their demographic is changing. It is trending more towards younger rock fans, if not out-and-out kids. They choose to work with producer Vinnie Poncia yet again, and instead of emphasizing disco, they go more in a power-pop direction this time. Uh, let's start off with the first song, a cover song. I think the only time Kiss has ever kicked off an album uh, with a song that they themselves did not write. This is Is That You? I actually liked it a lot. The lyrics were definitely sort of a lot darker than anything in, uh, Kiss has really ever done with the whole, like, you're 17 and trashed out Um and then there's, it's interesting that it's basically just this teardown of this woman being a complete mess, but then it's interspersed with lyrics about her cracking her whip and shaking her hips. Um, and then she gets all the boys that she wants, and then she get, she kills them with a knife, but then she winds up looking halfway dead and crawling upstairs and things like that. So it was kind of a, it was just basically any way that you can present an evil, sad person was in this song. Uh, but I think lyrically, it really uh, stood out to me. It was one of the darkest things I've, I think they've done at this point. And I did not realize it. I didn't realize it was a cover. I thought it was, didn't, didn't they have some writing credit? Who did it before? Um, it was an outside writer named Gerald McMahon. Yeah, I got that. It was, by, it was written by, the lyrics were written by somebody else. I didn't realize the whole song was written. Yeah. Uh, Oh, okay. All right. All right. So, because I thought it was like co-written or something like that, but no, I didn't realize it was completely done by them or by him. Yeah, I, I did some research. I think I was able to find some demos. I'm not sure that it was ever released um, by Gerald before, but I did find some demos. Um, and there are there are a few um, you know lyric verific, uh, changes that, that Paul did. I think there was the line where, um, it was originally uh, act your age, get back in your cage, and Paul changed that to you know act your age, get off your stage. So yes. there were a few minor changes uh, lyrically there, um, but overall I think it's a good. It, it, uh, you know, go ahead, Dave. Go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, in terms of lyrics too, there's a whole other verse in the uh, demo where he talks about you drove my car into the high school, uh, which sounds like something out of a bad '80s movie. Paul dropped that one entirely. Um, yeah. Some other interesting differences between the demo and the version that uh, that Kiss ultimately did is there's on the demo there's there's some points in the chorus where the background vocals and the lead vocal are sort of tripping over each other and fighting for attention, uh, where Vinnie and Paul kind of streamlined that and made it a little bit more elegant. Yeah, and I I think uh, one other difference too is I want to say that uh, the solo section in in the, the demo version might be a harmonica, whereas obviously Kiss you know did a guitar solo, um, which I believe was Paul in this case. Um, you know, but overall, I mean, I think it's I think it's a good opener for the for the album. I, I you know going through the other songs that are on the record, I can't really think of anything else that would you know knock it out out of place. I mean, you know, granted in 1980 this is when you know vinyl was king and you know there were two sides to a record so you know um you know there you know tomorrow is a great opener for the second side but for this you know this side i think you know this is a good opening tune um and i you know think there's overall just you know with this record i mean obviously 
we we talked about how maybe Dynasty might have been um, you know a solo album from each of the four members you know disguised as you know Kiss you know rock disco record, whereas I think this record seems a little more cohesive in terms of sounding like a band and sort of working together. Um, but I just don't think that the album overall has, let's say, some of the edge, you know, that Dynasty might have had, which, again, we're obviously a long way at this point from, um, you know, albums that had edge like Rock and Roll Over. Uh, but at the same time, I think this record seems a little more cohesive in terms of sounding like a band um, and less like, you know, four guys working separately and hoping to you know, have that sound like a, a complete you know, band album. Yeah, yeah, and we'll re- we'll return to that question about about Edge uh, for for this album as well. Um, interesting story about the origins of this song. Um, Gerard was an up and coming young rock and roller who uh, I believe was on tour and found himself in a hotel bar uh, <laughs> and was approached by a young Betty Page looking uh, dominatrix type and uh, tight leather corset and all that. And she apparently said to him, Hey, would you like to uh, go up to your hotel room and I'll give you a good thrashing. Um, (laughs) And he said, no, but I think I might use you in a song. And so I, <laughs> that's the original origin for the the line, yeah, shake your hips, crack your whips. Actually, the second Kiss song to uh, mention a whip, right? The first one being Sweet Pain, and then later on in uh, Killer, um, mm-hmm. they, they referenced that. You know, I don't think that the line about uh, play nice, then stick them with your knife is necessarily meant to be taken literally. Um, I think it's just more of sort of the the femme fatale um, in general kind of thing. Uh, the phrase 17 and trashed out is really a pretty serious line to me. Like it really sticks out and really sets the tone for the whole song. So, yeah, now that you're taking it apart and saying this is based on him meeting a dominatrix Dominatrice, I guess. I don't know how you pronounce it, but um, yeah, I get that it's the femme fatale thing, but I was sort of more interested. I mean, they're talking about a person crawling upstairs, things like that. I mean, I take it as sort of like a, any way you can dislike a woman is this song. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like they're not only, I'm not only trying to kill you, but they're also trying to, you know, they're also a mess themselves. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting if you look at this song in terms of, the whole title and concept of this album uh, Mm. because it's called kiss unmasked. Right. And so if you look at lines like act your age, get off your stage, um, Mm. take off your insecure disguise. These, these are all criticisms that had been lobbed at kiss for, you know, you guys are grown men and clown makeup and, Obviously, you know, this, the fact that you feel the need to get on stage and, and behave this way, this is, you know, your insecurities. And their, their stock answer about that at the time was, um, you know, what we do isn't anything different than uh, a woman that puts on makeup and puts on a sexy dress. You know, it's not a lie. She just wants to emphasize a, a certain part of herself and put that forward into the world. And that's what we do. And so I think, you know, 
it, it works on a conceptual level for the whole album, and they actually go back to the concept of disguise later on, but we'll get to that. Okay, all right, cool. Yeah, so good opener. Um, a couple other things, just talking about the overall sound of this album. Um, really tight, crisp, clear low end uh, mm -hmm. on, on the bass. It's really punchy. Um, you know, a general problem in hard rock is that very frequently the bass is doubling the root note of uh, root and fifth power chord. And especially when it's recorded slightly distorted, like Gene likes, um, you know, a lot of times on a lot of rock albums, the bass and guitar are fighting for the same frequency range with what with overtones and whatnot, and, and the bass can get buried. Uh, Vinny does a great job of separating the bass and the guitar on this album. Um, Paul, Paul's voice we should talk a little bit about, too. Um, mm -hmm. You know, Mike, you had said on Dynasty, I think that, or maybe it was you, John, that had brought up the fact that uh, Paul was disappointed with how his voice turned out and he was trying kind of an experimental approach to his vocals on Dynasty that he wasn't entirely happy with. I think on this album, he really hit a sweet spot, uh, both in terms of how he was singing and in terms of uh, the, the types of effects that are put on his voice. Um, I'm not 100% sure, but I think what's going on is there is prob they're probably detuning his voice just slightly and sending it back in with the main voice, and they're probably putting a hair breadth of delay on it as well. And what that does, it's an effect that uh, they use standard on Ozzy Osbourne on his solo albums. It really mm. thickens up the voice, and uh, especially on this voice and on this tour, if you listen to the, the live shows in Australia, uh, Paul's voice just sounds like honey. Mr. Speed, uh, the Kiss Tribute Band that I was working with years ago, uh, played a show out here a few years ago in Wooden Hills, California, and the sound guy that was uh, working that day was a guy that had worked on the Kiss Animalize tour. And he was telling us a story similar to what you're saying, Dave, where what you hear in the live mix out front is, you know, when it comes to Paul's voice, is really a combination of things. It's sort of like you're hearing more of the, the processed sound, uh, which makes complete sense to me because anytime you've gone to like a karaoke bar, why do the vocals always sound so horrible? It's because that, that microphone is going right into the board and it sounds completely <laughs> awful, you know? Yeah, so exactly. no yes. wonder... They, they do things to make the voice, you know, not that you know, this is no discredit you know, to Paul's voice or you know, vocal capabilities, but when it comes to making things sound fuller, it's basically a mixture of the live direct uh, line from the microphone as well as some of the processing uh, that is involved as well, you know, just like you mentioned. Yeah, like reverb. That's the infamous line. What person wants to hear reverb on their on their monitor? That's what whenever I did sound, that was one of the things that I, I like. I could I have this total judgment of other musicians if they wanted to hear the reverb go back through their monitor rather than what was actually just going through the microphone or whatever. So they wanted to make themselves sound pretty to themselves, you know. But uh, yeah, no, there's definitely yeah. I I know that we, even when I was doing sound, that was something we at least put a little bit of reverb when we put it out, um, as well as even a little bit of delay and some other stuff to EQ it. So that's interesting. Moving on, the first single from the album, uh, co-write with Vinnie Poncia, Shandy. Um, I'll go first. Shandy, this is what I wrote down my notes. Sounds like 
1970s AM pop with reverb on lead and beginning, jangly guitar, and breathy chorus. I like the chorus a lot. I did not realize this had a different bass player than Gene on it, um, but I, I did some research and saw that he didn't play bass on it, but he did. Uh, and I actually, I, I like this song a lot. I mean, it's, to me, it's not a very his song. It, it, I discovered that this is the only song that I remember from the album, you know what I mean? When I owned the album or whatever, and then I sold it away or whatever. But I, I, this is this is the only song that I remember from this album. I mean, I and I, I like it, but I don't know if it's particularly a great Kiss song. Although, isn't it? It was released their single, and did it chart? You guys know if it charted? Uh, it was a hit in Australia. It sounds like '70s AM radio pop to me when I first heard it. It sounded like they were trying to go for, um, you know, sort of to get that big hit uh, to come out. You know, it's got someone, we wrote this to make a hit, and it's going to sound like that. But I, I, I do like it. Interestingly enough, they, they didn't play the song on the uh, following uh, tour for Unmasked until later uh, in the tour. I think they had played other tracks like Is That You and Talk To Me, but Shandy wasn't added until uh, November when they started touring in Australia. Uh, but yes, indeed, there, there's definitely, uh, I believe it's Paul's guitar tech at the time. His name is Tom Harper. Uh, he played bass on this track, and the story I read was, um, according to Paul, I'm sorry, according to Tom Harper, that Vinny uh, and and Paul, and, you know, they were sitting around wanting to work on this song, and I guess Gene wasn't around. So then Vinny said to Tom, "Hey, you know, here's here's the track. Take it home, learn the bass, and come in tomorrow and play bass on this track." Um, but I, I agree with you, John. It's definitely you can tell with this record they're going for more of I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say a, more of a commercial sound but it's definitely a sound overall that would be, would be played on radio you know like i mentioned before we were a far cry from rock and roll over um these songs you know seem competitive production wise with a lot of songs that would have been on the radio um during that time however it seems like no matter what there's always a sort of pushback with kiss i mean had it been any other band that recorded the song and, and released this they might have had a better chance at you know having a stronger uh selling single let's say in the united states i mean granted it was obviously popular in australia but however because it's KISS and it's the U.S., you know, they're always sort of swimming upstream with, you know, trying to achieve some sort of success. But I think it is prime example on this record of how they're trying to go for a little bit more uh, commercial sound in terms of, of production. And songwriting has always been, uh, from an arrangement standpoint, you know, on par. I mean, they, they obviously write songs well, we know that. Uh, but in terms of production, it's definitely a little bit more, let's say, a sterile uh, sound, less edgy, and hopefully, you know, I could hear this all on you know AM radio. So so yeah, it's an interesting point you make about how uh, Kiss always had an uphill battle with this stuff. And but I think in general, the way that we listen to pop music, you know, it's always with the expectations of that we have inherently for the band that we're listening to, right? So you know, if you put on an ACDC record. Uh, you may say like, oh, you know, this is sounds like every other ACDC record, and it's they've done this before. ACDC has recorded the same album like for fifteen years, uh, at least for twenty years. Yeah, right. But say you put that same album on, and you you were told actually this album is by Motley Crue, you might go, oh, well, that's interesting that they've kind of gone to, you know, that back to their roots and that sort of song. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like a cliche album for ACDC would be an interesting place for Motley Crue to go to. Just like if Cheap Trick had put out Unmasked, I think it would have been looked at a lot differently. 
Well, that's a band that I keep coming back to. This sounds a lot like Cheap Trick. Now, is Cheap Trick much more successful at this point than Kiss? I mean, are they sort of trying to ape a Cheap Trick sound, it seems like? Or even a, um, not even <laughs> Cheap Trick, but like um, the Knack and all that power pop stuff that's coming out at the same time. Like the skinny tie sound, you know what I mean? Are they trying to, they've moved from disco to this. Um, and even the power pop bands were sort of searching for uh, commercial stuff. They were recording things that sounded like 70s AM radio pop. You know what I mean? They were all sort of converging in this uh, type of stuff. And I can't think of any examples right now, except for that cheap trick ballad, which I think came out later than the eight, in 1980. But it seems like they were all, you know, sort of converging for the sound at that time. Yeah, I think, you know, the word might be sophisticated in a way. You know, I think yeah, they were trying okay. to, you know, sound a little more like, you know, uh, sophisticated production. Um, but also, too, you know, I, I'm not hearing a lot of, you know, I'm, I don't, this isn't the type of album where they were trying to, you know, sound like they do in a live situation. Like they weren't recording this in a theater somewhere and trying mm -hmm. to sound like a live presentation. There's a lot more thought um, and let's say reservation uh, involved. I would, yeah, I would guess that they're using a lot of small amplifiers and, you know, trying to make sure that sounds are as clean and, um, you know, as uncluttered as possible. Um, and, you know, and is, you know, just organized in a way. It just yeah. seems like, yeah, it's, it's definitely, a, I would call it a, a produced record. Not that that's a bad thing, but you can tell that they're really putting a lot of work into making sure this album sounds different than something they had released, you know, in years previous. Right. And they continue to grow. And you're right. It is an uphill battle for them because they're always going against what they want to make versus what the fans particularly want. It's interesting. It's interesting, too. This album starts, I mean, this song starts off with a guitar solo, which for Kiss is pretty unusual. And it's another Paul Stanley guitar solo. Um, yes. Which I think, is there another Kiss album in which Paul ends up playing this much lead guitar? I don't think so. Yeah, not as much. It's usually just, you know, Ace and Paul would split a solo or, you know, I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe a good comparison might be Come On and Love Me because apparently that riff, that, that, that guitar solo riff in the beginning on uh, Dress to Kill, Come On and Love Me, is Paul apparently playing that. So this might be, you know, that might be the best example of them doing that previous, but since then they haven't done it at, to that extent. Yeah. Um, if you listen to the, the demo, um, for this song. It's not Paul on vocals. I believe it's probably Vinny uh, singing it, uh, which makes me think that he is probably the principal songwriter on this song. It's a little bit more organic. There's some kind of Spanish flamenco guitar on the demo, and I think there's some congas and stuff. So it's a little, you know, less of a, a dance song, a little more organic, but. Um, my my big problem is the placement of the song. I think the album, it just kind of sucks the energy out of the album by putting this song second. I agree. I agree. Yeah, 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 then again, I, I, yeah. I, again, I mean, as well, it's, it goes to that. I mean, I don't know when that rule became in effect, but I, I remember reading and hearing from different sources, you're, your third or your fourth song was supposed to be your uh, hit, 
the one that you wanted radio stations to hear. You wanted the most affect from your audience. You know what I mean? They wanted to, you, you, the, the argument goes that psychologically people aren't actually listening to the album until the third or fourth song anyway. And I don't know if that's really true, but that was basically, you know, when we were, when I was trying to make it as a rock star, all the different people that would talk about this kind of stuff would say that kind of stuff. You know, that if you're on stage, no one even hears your first or second song. It's not, it's not until your third song they hear it. They're actually paying attention. Well, that's interesting because the third song is Talk to Me, which was uh, the second single. Yeah, right. Okay, and, that, and, and it makes sense. And um, I said it sounds like a Who song. It even has that, like, you know what I mean? It sounds a lot like the Who to me. Uh, and my notes here say it's a great idea for a song. But some lyrics are cliched, uh, and in the solo, it sounds really good. And it sounds like a uh, what I said, like a 1960s, you know, late 60s, early 70s type rock and roll song or whatever. Um, and I, I love the idea for it. You know what I mean? Just give me some conversation. You know what I mean? It's really kind of neat. But uh, and it's definitely a clever lyrical song. Um, but then it kind of gets a little cliched. You know what I mean? He's got this great idea but he can't really get the, the lines out to really explore the idea of just trying to get someone to pay attention to him. So, but I, again, another great, I liked it. Yeah. I thought it was a good one. Yeah. And for me, lyrically, I like the fact that you know, the verses seem to focus on the idea of, let's say a physical attraction. You know, there are certain things obviously that Ace is interested in, you know, you know, the female subject of this song, but then when it ultimately comes down to it in the, the chorus, all he wants to do is have a little conversation. So it goes from right. you know, the sort of, let's say, lust or infatuation or however you want to look at it to something a little more uh, you know, earthy in a way. Like he just wants to be able to have you know, some company, which is you know, an interesting way to, you know, to write a song compared to some of the, you know, with the, the quote unquote uh, cock rock that we've seen uh, from Kiss uh, previously. Right, right. Like I said, yeah, it's a great idea. It's a great idea for a song. Well, it, it's 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 funny, right? Because Ace is sort of the king of writing against expectations and, and, and using contradictions. Shock me, it makes me feel better. You know, cold gin time keeps us <laughs> together. He goes, you know, I wish yeah. you knew the way that I felt. You'd think I'm silly. It's infatuation. So he wishes that she knew the way that he felt. And if she did, she'd think he was. She'd think he was silly. Um, <laughs> right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. But I, I imagine Gene and Paul and Ace looking out at the crowds on the Dynasty tour, and saying to themselves, mm. you know, the, there are a lot of preteen kids out there, and we need to write some songs that aren't the jaded mm. cock rock kind of thing, and are about first love and puppy love and the sort of infatuation that you have with your first girlfriend. And, um, you know, obviously what's the first thing you do when you want to meet a girl is you talk to them. You want to, you want them to talk to you. So I, I think this is Ace's stab at that. And, uh, I like it. I mean, it, it's, it's a catchy as hell tune. And, yeah. you know, once again, I think he's playing everything and just using Gene and Paul as background vocalists. Yes, that he is. Yeah. And interesting, too, that um, at this point we, on the on the album, we've not heard a Gene Simmons song either. Whereas I think this is similar to the Dynasty record where we were not hearing Gene's songs until later, you know, after, you know, a few Paul songs and an Ace. Um, you know, again, whatever the reasons for that are, I don't know. Um 
But you know, at the beginning of our discussion, I mentioned uh, the open G tuning on guitar, and this is one of the two tracks in this record uh, that Ace used in open G tuning. And basically, what that is, you know, think of you know, Rolling Stones. You have like, you know, start me up. It's basically the open G tuning is a way to tune your guitar so you can play a full chord with only one finger and then emphasize that with you know, the other remaining fingers on, on your left hand. Four uh, instances where Ace used an open G tuning, I think the first time might have been on Ozone on the 1978 solo record. Uh, two songs on this record and then later on, I think he used an open G tuning for Darklight on The Elder. Uh, but it's an interesting way to have some sort of contrast between you know, chord variations uh, when you're playing with another guitar player, it makes things sound a little bigger and fuller in a way. So interesting that Ace is you know, using that you know, twice on this record. Uh, what do you think is going on with the uh, guitar at the beginning of the song in the right side? That almost sounds like a guitar synth to me. I agree. It definitely sounds like a uh, guitar synth to me as well. It's It seems a little... I would. It doesn't sound like a guitar going through you know, a mark partial amplifier it seems processed and that could be a, a synth effect as well i agree yeah it's a little hard to tell because there's a lot of keyboards on this album played by holly knight and they're used in kind of interesting and creative ways a lot of times they're having her double some of the notes on some of the more melodic guitar solos which uh is is kind of a cool effect it's one that i haven't heard on a lot of other albums Yes, I agree. At the time, that was a little off-putting to me as a kid, you know, being a Kiss fan. I thought, well, why are there all these keyboards on this record? And again, you know, do they get a keyboard player in the band and they're not listed on the record? And, you know, what's going on here? But, you know, from, you know, a songwriter perspective and a production perspective, absolutely, it adds something uh, to, you know, to this, to this album. Okay. Naked City. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with the lyrics again. Kind of neat about the opening line about losing his stature and the chorus of or what's the opening line? I can't remember. It's like something about like my social stature or something. Yeah, all the victims have turned to stone. No one right. is happy. They're all alone. I sacri I sacrifice my social position tonight. Yeah, that's freaking great. Okay, but then I look. It's uh, it's written by um, Bob Kulik, Poncia, and someone named Peppy. Peppy Castro. Oh, We've Pepe actually Castro. talked yeah, about Pepe him on uh, on previous and podcasts. Again, yes. a, another great lyrical song, another great subject matter. Um, that opening, that first verse is is killer. Totally grabs my attention, um, and it's a it's a really neat song. Um, you know, it, it stands up as a well constructed song. Um, I like. It's a great demon song. You know what I mean? But um, and I like it all around, have no problems with it, but I guess it's written by, you know, everybody but Kiss, which is fine. You know I think I mean? Gene is involved yeah, in the songwriting, sure too. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Gene wrote it, but it's got a lot of different people on it. That's yeah. all I'm saying. And I don't mind, you know, I don't mind that now. I've come to realize that that's part of the whole game, but still, um, it definitely is a good, solid song. And And again, in this album, it seems like they're growing... They're more concerned about lyrics, or at least creating songs that stand out from one another. In a lot of their past albums, the songs stand out, but only because if you're like a maniacal fan like we are, you've listened to it a few times and you're able to say, well, this song is this, this song is that. But in some cases, they may sort of start sounding the same if you're coming from the outside. But on this album, they seem to be a little more, each song seems to have 
an interesting subject matter, something that sets it apart from all the other songs. Rather than be like, here's my cool riff, here's my cool chorus, you know what I mean? I don't know. Like, And, and in this case, it's the lyrics that help make it stand out to me. Yeah, it, it's interesting because I guess apparently there was a demo that was done previous uh, to them recording this song, and I know according to you know Bob Kulik, he had you know a difference of opinion of how the how the finished product turned out. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, John, you mentioned subject matter. It's it's very you know heady subject matter for you know what would have been you know nine or ten year old kid. It's good to to have a song we have to sort of you know chew into a little bit more and 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 delve into lyrics to understand what's going on here you know is it part fiction is it something that he's uh, you know trying to paint a picture in a different way you know perhaps but um interesting that you know their songwriting particularly genes in this case uh, went in that direction lyrically right. and when you get to that breakdown there's a lot of sort of sound effects going on that you know kind of reinforce the sort of spooky nature the demon nature of mm-hmm. the lyric yeah. as well so i think you know from top to bottom, this song is you know, is a great Gene song in, in a lot of ways, and I think it comes across, um, you know, in that way for sure. This whole album seems to be very well constructed songs. There's no one-offs. There's nothing really quick about. I mean, there are goofy songs on here, but it's definitely Naked City seems to be a very well constructed song that they took a lot of time with, not recorded live, you know. Right. Well, in the past, they had spent maybe three weeks in the studio recording an album. They actually spent about 10 weeks in the studio yeah. recording this one. Um, okay. So they did They did take their time. Um, interestingly enough, uh, the title, Naked City, there was a, a police procedural program um, that was called Naked City um, that started off with a narration uh, that said there are ten or there are eight million stories in the naked city. This is right. this yeah. is one of them. Uh, so right. some, somewhere in the lyrics they added an extra two million to make it an even ten. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know it's interesting too. This is the the I think the only uh, Kiss song that mentions the word vampire, which is sort of Gene's persona, street vampires mm-hmm. in the night. Um, it, it, it's almost impossible to write a rock song that emphasizes, uh, the words lonely people and not evoke Eleanor Rigby a little bit. Um, you know, I, I think of it every time I hear the stick song, lonely people, I think of, you know, and this song, um, mm-hmm. I do think that this is one of those songs that is, somewhat hurt by the poppy production. I think that there is an arrangement of this song because the lyric uh, the lyric subject matter is so dark and so heavy. It's almost like hard rock film noir, which is mm-hmm. a, a genre that, that Gene will kind of go back to around the time of the Animalize album with Murder and High Heels and While the City Sleeps. Uh, but this is this is the first time he's really tried to approach a song like this, and it's one of those songs that's been covered uh, several times subsequently by other artists, and that have taken a, a heavier approach with it. And uh, I think it, you know, if, if there's one song on this album that the poppy production is, seems somewhat inappropriate for, it's this one. Yeah, good point. I agree, David. I think that 
that might have been uh, Bob Kulik's perspective on this as well. Maybe you know heavier you know production might have you know stirred the song a little more uh, when it comes to supporting you know the, the the lyrics as well. So you know I I agree. Also, is this the first Kiss song to directly mention destiny? I've got to live my destiny because uh, that's another lyrical theme that Kiss will return to again and again. Um, you know, on the Elder on rock and roll hell he seems to think it's his destiny um it's kind of a, a lyrical thread that 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 goes throughout all all their work whether or not it's overtly mentioned or not you know now it you, you you're uh, born to rule it's destiny now it can be told on on the eighth day mm-hmm. yeah, interesting yeah yeah i think yeah it might be the first use of the word destiny Eric, on a kiss tune good point Excellent point. All right. Moving on. What makes the world go round? I like the chorus. <laughs> the chorus is very catchy with the found out, found out, you know, the full chorus. Again, I think it sounds like they're really trying to hit a 70s pop sound. Um, you know, and I literally just say that it's filler. What, what actually struck me is there is a thing that we sing at every Boy Scout and Cub Scout camp about what makes the world go round. The cat makes the mouse go round. The not here, the blah blah blah. The dog makes the cat go round. You know what I mean? So literally, that I kept thinking about that when I was listening to the song. So the song doesn't like. I mean, the, the chorus is cool as all get out, but the rest of the song doesn't really stand up for me. It's not really that interesting. So maybe you guys have more perspective on it. We talked about this before regarding other Kiss songs. There's sort of a so the, a missing element to the chorus, you know, like, you know, the lyrics in the verse seem a little more about, you know, a guy wanting to be in a relationship or getting to know, you know, a girl. But then when it comes to, to you know, the chorus, you know, and I found out what makes the world go around. I think it's a play upon the the uh, the phrase love makes the world go around. So he's found true love. And so, therefore, that's what it is. It might be a, a tad bit too clever for its own good. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's a line in the verse, too, that sticks out, because I always thought it was kind of a a silly line when he says, you're the only one who could make me feel smart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. It just always stuck out as an awkward line to me. I mean, is that really a thing? Maybe it is, I guess. I, you know. <laughs> well, I haven't felt that smart in a while, so I don't know. <laughs> I have to check that out. But yeah, there's, again, it's too, it's, it's not a finished song. I mean, again, the production is great, but I don't think it's like a standout song. It doesn't stand on its own. And then, of well, course, the end of the Cub Scout Boy Scout song is Love Makes the World Go Round. Love Makes the World Go Round. You want me to do it for you? I can do it. <laughs> you got a spare 15 minutes. <laughs> You know, to the point about the lyric, Dave, you know, what's the, the line that follows? I think they're basically trying to rhyme with the word um, beating up against my heart. I mean, maybe yeah. they just couldn't find another, you know, useful word that would have you know, worked for what they were trying to convey. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, is this the one in which he splits the solo with Ace? Yes, I think um, Paul takes the... The beginning. The beginning, yes. Yeah. I, I had a hard time listening in the headphones trying to figure out where Paul stops playing and Ace starts. Um, yeah, Paul's basically doing those sort of uh, Pete Townsend, you know, sort of, you know, chordal 
soloing parts. And then when Ace comes in with his licks that are similar to what Ace played um, in part of his solo for the song uh, Dark Light on the Elra, the sort of, you know, staccato notes that are playing around, you know, the chord structure. I think that becomes Ace. But before that, you're getting like that, you know, Pete Townsend rhythm lead style. And then Ace comes in with, you know, his sort of signature licks. Okay, and then the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da is, is being doubled by keyboard, I think, too, at the same time. I believe so. But, you know, then again, before the, you know, the solo, um, that bridge, you know, chord structure-wise, is great. I mean, there's so many great bridges on um, To me, that's, that's mature songwriting. You know, that's not just, you know, one, four, five, you know, power chord rock. I mean, these guys, you know, again, I've used the word sophisticated. Yeah, you can tell they put a lot of thought into the bridges uh, to make them separate entities unto themselves and contrast with the verses and the chorus and really uh, be integral parts of the songs, for sure. Yeah. You know, another interesting point, too, about uh, the, the songs on, the, on this album, I mean, I don't think there's a song on the record that's any shorter than, you know, three minutes and, and four seconds. And in, in general, these songs are, are pretty long uh, compared to, you know, uh, songs that were on previous albums. So, you know, granted, I think the, the whole album might be 36 minutes long, but still, you know, you're cramming, what, five songs on, on a, an album side, you know, each of those songs is, you know, three to four minutes. You know, that's, you know, they're, they're obviously trying to, you know, um, get the most uh, in terms of songwriting and, and, and production, for sure. Moving on to song one, side B, Tomorrow. Uh, okay, so this is the song that they play in the movie when they're doing the montage of everybody getting ready to do whatever they're setting up for in the movie, whether that be like build the float for the homecoming thing or set up the gym for the prom or... Um, whatever, like that, literally that is all I can think of when I listen to the song, that it's sort of, it's a perfect 80s movie montage. I see, you know, teenagers in leotards and leg warmers with poofy hair running around, uh, doing whatever they got to do to make the thing work. So, uh, again, real catchy, you know, super catchy. Um, and like I said, it's, you know, I, I can't get, I can't get that idea that it just stands in for like those, that type of song you would play in like a montage in an 80s movie. In terms of you know, production, again, this is, again, sort of, you know, kiss, uh, light, you know, in a way the, the, the production on this record. And I think, you know, with the sort of airy drums in the intro and, mm -hmm. you know, it seems kind of, you know, happy, happy go lucky type approach to you know, the production. But, you know, at the same time, if you look at the lyrics, I mean, Paul's, basically teetering from, you know, like a moth, I was in your flame. I knew you wanted me to make me feel real good by the way you smiled. But, you know, but then when it comes to the chorus, is that sort of, you know, the closure, like, you know, okay, then if that's the case, then I'm looking to close the deal and tomorrow we're going to fall in love tomorrow. So is he sort of just looking forward to, you know, going the next step with, you know, the, you know, the, the female subject matter uh, in this song, perhaps? I don't know, Dave, you might have an opinion on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, Overall, this is one of the few Kiss albums that you could actually say is 
a happy sounding album, you know, and, mm -hmm. and there are some exceptions to that, you know, Naked City, Is That You, uh, Easy As It Seems are kind of negative. But, uh, but in general, there's a lot of just positive energy uh, type songs in this album. And again, I think this is the type of Paul song that they were very consciously writing for younger kids that might be uh, just having their first relationships and, and experiencing that kind of obsessive puppy love, you know, uh, seeing the world with rose-colored glasses and, um, you know, much like what makes the world go around that. I mean, they're almost companion songs to each other in a way. Yeah, it, the chorus is so big, you know what I mean? You can't help but sort of get goosebumps when you're hearing it. And then the tomorrow, you know what I mean? Like, you just want to like, you know, you know, even I'm, you know, I walk a little faster. I always listen to this when I'm not walking or whatever, but you know, you walk a little faster and you like got a smile on your face. I mean, it, it literally has, it hits that emotional thing that songs are supposed to hit, whether it's manipulative, you know, which some people would argue, um, because you know, you can get that effect with that, but it still works. I mean, it totally works. It's a happy song. I feel good listening to it. And again, I think that's Paul on lead guitar, pretty much playing lead guitar in almost all his songs. Yeah, for whatever, and I think it's Paul playing all guitars and bass in this song. Yeah. Um, but, you know, on, on the, the, I mean, the poppy element of this song, I think around the time when this album came out, I was also, you know, Saturday morning, you could watch cartoons or, you know, a ton of different things. One of the shows that was on early morning was uh, the Bay City Rollers uh, TV show. And you know, this kind of reminds me, in the best way, of a song that has always stuck to me since then. I think they had a, the Bay City Rollers had a song called Rock and Roll Love Letter. And I think the lyrics were, this is my rock and roll love letter to you. I'm going to sign it, going to seal it, going to mail it away, going to mail it today. I mean, you know, it's a great, it's a great lyric, no matter what, you know, and I think, you know, this is, again, I think Kiss is, you know, if you want to you know, compare apples to oranges, you know, Kiss is writing, you know, in a sophisticated way, you know, pop songs uh, to a certain extent. And this might be an example of that. Well, Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones is an answer to Saturday Night by the Bay City Rollers. I mean, they literally uh, purposely modeled their song on that song. I mean, it's there's no crime in it, you know. It's still like no. they know what's catchy. Here's a thought. When did the Annie movie come out? Wasn't that about 1980? Yeah, that might I, be right. I think it might. Dave, I think you're right. I think it was, yeah, yeah, I think it was 80. 80. Yeah, and that had obviously the big hit song, Tomorrow, as well. Yeah. Good point. Wow. I, I never made that connection. Yeah. Um, hmm. huh, yeah, Good, again, another well-produced, great structured song, super catchy. All right. Second Ace Fraley song on the album, Two Sides of the Coin. I really like the, uh, the second verse a lot, but I, I didn't write down the lyrics that I liked. I can, remember, I can look uh, it up quickly. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, I like the, uh. There's that really cool jangly guitar bit in the bridge. You know what I mean? That really stuck out to me because that's, again, not a stereotypical Kiss type way to do things, but it was still um, cool. And then in, in the fill there, they got a great, you know, there's a great there's a great drum fill somewhere in there that is not Peter Chris. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's like a big kind of drum fill that is 
right. definitely well, stepping away from the way that Peter plays. Well, none of the um, drums, maybe, none of the drums on this album are Peter Chris. This is right, all yeah, Anton Fig, but yeah. yeah, we all know it's all Anton Fig. And I, for, I mean, I listened to the Paul Stanley, or read a little bit of the Paul Stanley book, and he said, "Was he Peter Chris? Was was he out at this point, or did he?" They did like a couple of shows with Peter for this where they were lip syncing or what was the deal? I don't even know. Um, they shot a video for Shandy with Peter Chris mm -hmm. in, the, in the video. I think that was, but th by the time they were doing that, he had already quit the band. Um, so, you know, they knew that that was the end. And it's interesting if you hear their different accounts of it, um, Paul's account is, oh, Peter was so out of it. He didn't even seem to, care or mind and then peter talks about he was the last guy at the video shoot and he was you know breaking down in tears you know mm -hmm. so they, they have very different perspectives there's an interesting interview from gene that i found from this era where he talks about it and he says yeah peter's not going to be in the band anymore because he doesn't want to tour but he's still a part of the kiss family and you know we wish him the best and you know he just wants to make little peter chris's with his new uh wife as a <laughs> copper tone sun, you know suntown girl or whatever um so you know their their whole perspective on this is wildly divergent and has changed greatly over time yeah well gene sounds like he's just covering for it trying to make it a you know a good political answer or whatever but still yeah i, I see what you're saying yeah, I read that. I mean, this Paul Stanley doesn't like anybody. If you've ever read that book, you sound the only time he ever talks positive about anything is when he's like hooking up with someone. Like seriously, it's really a depressing <laughs> book to read because you're like, dude, you're a multimillionaire and you're sitting here complaining about the whole thing. You know, it's like Jesus Christ, dude. Oh, wow. he, Sorry. he he doesn't complain half as much as Peter Chris. You ought to read his book. <laughs> oh, really? I'm yeah. Read his next. I, I don't know. They're so miserable. I don't know. I'd muddle through. You know what I mean? Like if I had to accidentally play a half sold out arena, I'd, I'd somehow get through it. I'd muddle through. I'd just I'd put my head down and I'd just enjoy it. And I wouldn't complain about it. But whatever. Nobody asked me. So at any rate, yes, I really like Two Sides of the Coin. It's really good power pop. There's a little cool keyboard part in there too. I like the jangly bridge, which again doesn't sound like his, what he normally does. Mike, what do you think? Yeah, again, I love all the eight songs in this record. Uh, and again, I mentioned open G guitar tuning. This is the second song in this album with an open G tuning. Um, you know, it, to me, it's, you know, it, again, we, we're, we're looking at Ace Freely here in probably, you know, solo album mode. I mean, it's basically Ace playing all the instruments, you know, with the exception of drums and doing all, most of the lead, uh, bass, all the lead vocals and maybe some backgrounds by Gene or Paul. Um, but that jangly part that you mentioned, John, Interesting point about that. It's um, that's basically the same chord structure that is used for the chorus of "Talk to Me," but it's sort of played in a reverse order, which is interesting because if you, you know you probably can't hear my guitar, but if you would play it, there are all those chords. He's just basically playing around the same exact chords that are used in the "Talk to Me" chorus, but you know, but making a, a sort of arpeggiated you know motion on guitar for that bridge, which is interesting too because. You know, you mentioned the drums as well. You know, it's almost like a co-lead guitar, lead drum solo. It's, it's like that jangly yep. part is playing a supporting role to, to Anton's uh, drum fills, which again, are, you know, probably 
as impressive as what he did on uh, the breakdown um, in Rip It Out on drums. And it's, you know, it's great drumming. And I remember hearing this album as a kid and thinking, okay, I've got this record. These are the four guys on the cover. This must be, you know, Gene, Paul, Ace, and Peter. Boy, Peter's really playing some interesting drum feels on this record. I remember thinking as a kid, like, wow, Peter's really advancing, you know, but as we find out later, you know, it's, it's somebody else playing drums. Um, but, but either way, on the subject, too, uh, that, that Dave brought up about, you know, the, the sort of announcement from Gene about you know, where Peter was going with, with the band. I read somewhere that that was uh, a narrative from a Kiss Army newsletter at the time. And apparently that would have been front page news. However, it was tucked away on like page three of the newsletter. So it was like, you know, just yes, it was mentioned, but it was sort of in a cloak and dagger way. Like, OK, this is what's going on here. But, you know, we're not going to make a huge announcement about it. At the same time, when you look at the last uh, panel's. Um, of the album cover itself, you know, you see the four guys taking off their masks only to reveal that, you know, the makeup is, is still there and they're still, you know, Kiss as they are. What? The, post, the, the poster that came with this record, when you open that up and look at it, Peter Chris is winking his left eye as if to say, you know, goodbye, you know, this is me exiting the band. So it was a, a subtle change that I didn't pick up on um, as a kid and until years later when I was getting more into collecting Kiss records and, you know, getting into the nuts and bolts of what's going on there. But I guess that was sort of you know, way to, to say Peter's exiting the band in a subtle way. Okay, well, if you want to get into conspiracy theories about the poster and the album cover, <laughs> if you look okay. at Peter, right, there's actually an X across the top of his head in the drawing, yeah. which has yeah. also been cited by some people as a uh, a sign that he was an ex-member on this album. Right, and then next to it says 28 if. On the, on the, and he's walking across the street. Everybody's in bare feet except for Peter Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. No, I mean, I love that kind of stuff. That's what keeps me coming back, man. Yeah. And then, okay, so this is, I mean, this is kind of an odd thing, but I know that the Bill of Coin book is called... Um, to what to something of the of the coin he makes a play on the word coin and then there's the um i would dare call them the our first cousin podcast even though we don't even know them um two sides of the coin they take their name i guess i would assume or three sides of the coin yes uh yes so um what's up with the use of the coin i mean is it over and over again you know i mean I keep seeing this. Is this a song that people cite as being such a great Kiss song that everybody knows it? I mean, or is it just like, that's just how it works out. Like, Bill of Coin's name is Coin, and you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Well, I mean, the subject matter is is Ace is, uh, you know, uh, conflicted about which of the many willing, available girls he's been dating he should right, yeah. pursue uh, in a more serious romantic level and so there are there are two that have made the grade and he's trying to pick uh one from the other but doesn't know exactly which way to go and you know it's it's a great you can hear sort of the frustration in his voice right. it's a great vocal performance um you know this might be a good time to talk about the fact that uh you had talked about how this album doesn't seem to have any edge to it, Mike, you know, and mm -hmm. I think one of the problems inherent in rock and roll is that once a band becomes successful, 
on the level that Kiss has become successful, where Paul Stanley is buying $10,000 Tiffany lamps for his New York condo and things like that, they really have very little in common with the fans and their lifestyle anymore, you know? So um, if you look at the, the album cover and some of the song lyrics overall, I mean, you know, these guys are living a lifestyle of taking limos to premieres and dating fellow music stars and models and actresses and eating in fancy restaurants and sipping pink champagne and vacationing in the French Riviera. <laughs> and the biggest problem they have is out of all the many attractive, willing and available women that want to be with them, choosing one to focus on, you know, um, it's, it's not hard to see how uh, the blue collar fans of the <laughs> band <laughs> might have you know, yeah. felt that they could no longer relate to these guys on a street level. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Right. Well, that's usually what happens at this point is bands start writing songs just about touring. That was the, you know what I mean? The, you know, the songs about being on the road. Every band eventually writes the, you know, wanted dead or alive. But, you know, most, uh, you know, BTO, I think, was doing it at this point. The Doobie Brothers, they were all sort of writing songs about being on the road all the time. And so they at least sort of stay away from that. But not by me. Yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, you think about this. I, mean, I remember buying this record in Dynasty as well and taking it into grade school and, you know, having, I mean, if there was backlash before when I was bringing Kiss records into school, by the time this was coming out, people were just like really downplaying Kiss. Like, oh, those albums are awful. I would never listen to that. And it was, you know, as a diehard Kiss fan, you either loved the band and you defended them or you, you just gave up at this point. And obviously we all, you know, stuck through and defended them through whatever was going on. But, the, you know, the easiest thing, you know, I know we mentioned you know, bands like ACDC, you know, at the time, you know, Back in Black had, you know, just come out this year. I mean, you know, that is probably the pinnacle of what ACDC achieved in terms of um, success with, with albums. But at the same time, the easiest thing for Kiss to do would have been to continue in the vein of, you know, Love Gun or Rock and Roll Over. But they, they took chances. They, they wanted to grow. They wanted to progress. And again, I mentioned the word sophisticated. And that takes a lot of guts to do. And, you know, and at the same time... <laughs> You know, I would love to know what the reasons were behind the fact that, you know, the only U.S. appearance uh, in terms of tour for this album was Eric Carr's debut show in July of 1980. Other than that, there were no U.S. tour dates. I don't think there were any booked. I don't think there were any planned. I felt sort of, I don't want to say betrayed, but I was let down. I thought, hey, man, we just saw Kiss, you know, back in July of 79. Here's the new record. I'm looking forward to seeing them live. And we didn't get that chance in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania until 1984. To see yeah. them again live, so I, I kind of I was let down, but it, you know, I didn't I didn't lose hope that I would see them again live, and I kept buying their records. But you know, I don't know what were the reasons why they weren't touring behind this record in the U.S. Was it just a a more favorable market overseas and in, in England and in Europe and in, in Australia maybe? But can you do a few shows in, in the U.S.? I mean, I don't I know. Didn't realize that they didn't tour for this album at all in the U.S. That's crazy. No, they they toured Europe, they toured Australia. Um... Germany, yeah, yeah. Even to the point where they used an altered, an alternate uh, Kiss logo that you know didn't you know sort of you know, if you want to call it resembled the SS uh, logo. They you know, looked like you know K I Z Z. They had a, brand, a whole different you know, lighted logo behind them and different images on the bass drum heads and stuff. So yeah, it's interesting. Kiss went from being uh, the number one band in America, if not the world, 
um, very quickly within a, a few years to largely being considered, you know, the band that maybe your kid brother liked, but they weren't, they were no longer considered a serious rock and roll band, you know, and there were all kinds of rumors about, oh, they don't play their own instruments and all this kind of stuff. Um, to the point where I think it was on this tour um, where Paul Stanley incorporated this whole uh, vocal stage rap where he goes, mm. you know, just to kind of paraphrase, he goes, you know, I know some of you people out there, you got friends that say, hey, man, you're pretty cool and all, but I got to tell you something, Kiss sucks, right? And he goes, yeah, they've been doing that rap forever. Yeah, okay. Yeah, Go but ahead, I think sorry. this is the first time it it they it appeared. And he goes, these uh -huh. are the kind of people that like to, you know, that think you people don't know what good rock and roll music is. And he goes, you know, I got two words for people like that. You know, maybe if we all say it together, they're gonna be able to hear us. And those words are, fuck off. Right. So how about at the count of three, we let those people know what we think of them. Right. And he does this whole uh, thing. And, you know, it's great. I think yeah. one of the things that hurt this record so much is that the cover was a gross miscalculation on their part. Right. Because mm -hmm. you've got this reporter that's obviously not being treating them in a respectful way and wants them to take off the makeup. And then in the last panel, he says, I still say they stink, okay? And all of the fans that are still with the band at this time are on a daily basis enduring ridicule for still being into KISS, having to defend KISS, having to fight for KISS. Um, and the band comes out and puts... Uh, that kind of sentiment on their own album cover and it it makes you think that they don't take themselves seriously they don't think they're very good themselves and it's mm -hmm. just it's it's just disheartening you know it it takes the wind out of your sails um i i think if they had just made the album cover the the last panel where it was their four faces taking off the masks to reveal the same faces underneath, it would have been a much better, much more effective album cover. And I think the album would have done better. Huh. Interesting. Well, it, it's, it's a big leap, you know, from, you know, granted, you know, we've talked about how cool the artwork is on albums like Destroyer and Rock and Roll Over. I mean, but that's just presenting the four faces in the group. Whereas this is like, you know, obviously we're all, you know, to a certain extent, you know, interested in, you know, in fans of, of comic books. This is basically a comic book, you know, strip that's happening that you're, you know, you're sort of forced into to reading and, and evaluating the record in that way. When you see something like, you know, when your favorite band at the time is, you know, obviously wearing costumes and masks, you know, or makeup, you know, this is almost like a billboard announcement, like saying kisses on masks. Like, Whoa, what's going on here? This is my favorite band. I got to read this. What is this all about? And then, then you really start to wonder, like, okay, well, it, if they do tour, what's going to happen? Are they going to be unmasked? You know, it was, it's really sort of deceiving and. Um, confusing in a lot of ways to, you know, to the average KISS fan. So, you know, you know, granted the artwork itself is, is amazing. I think it's sold for like 15 grand at the KISS auction back in 2000, but at the same time too, it's a bit much to take in. 
uh, you know, just at first glance. It's spectacular artwork. This is in no way a slight at the artist who did it. I think the artwork itself is brilliant. I just think it's conceptually flawed. If you've got a band yeah. that's being treated by other rock fans and the and the music press as a joke, the last thing that you want to do is put out an album where on the cover it basically seems to say, yeah, this is, we're, we think we're a joke too, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, I read, again, this interview with Gene from the time, he says something like, you know, um, there's always one guy, one Ebenezer Scrooge that doesn't get that Christmas is cool and fun and great. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he, you know, he's bah humbug. That may have been their intent, um, but mm -hmm. the album presents them living this very cushy, very soft life. And, and then, you know, just doesn't take them seriously. I just think it was a, a, a huge, huge marketing mistake. All right. I, I, I agree. Good I agree. Point. That's pretty interesting. I didn't really think of it that way. I remember I remember liking the cover a lot because I liked comics. Um, you know what I mean? And really digging the cover itself because I liked comics. Um, but yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I didn't even really think of that. That last, you know, say the second to the last panel where they remove the masks and they still have, you know, the image of, you know, the four characters. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at the earlier panels and there's pictures of Gene turning around with he's got a bandana over his face and you can see like he's got no makeup on. So there's a little bit of inconsistency here, too, with the, the storyline. Same thing with Ace when he's getting into the back of the limo and he's got his hand up and he's covering his face. You can see through that where, you know, there's no it's basically you know his face without makeup or the, the makeup design. Either way, you know, it, it's, it's a minor point that I, I'm just picking up on now. I thought I'd bring it up. Sure, sure. I remember getting very excited a bit at the concept that they were going to take their makeup off and then realizing when they take off the mask, it's just them still. I mean, I, I really actually remember that, that, that weird thrill, you know what I mean, when I picked it up and it's like, well, they're going to take off their makeup. And then, of course, it was just, you know, they're just the same underneath. One more point on that, and I'll, and I'll finish you know, with this uh, sort of reminiscing. But um, I had friends in grade school that uh, used to take the double platinum album, oh, yeah. and use tracing paper, and you know, try to you know, <laughs> trace you know, the, the parts that didn't include the makeup just to see what they might have looked like. So you know, I guess we were all curious. I've also heard uh, people that took the Mego dolls and you know put, <laughs> put nail polish remover on the paint on the faces to try to, you know... <laughs> or acetone or whatever to try to see what the faces look like without the makeup. Right. Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, Jean, she's so European. As anyone who's ever had a foreign exchange student can tell you, there's nothing like the lure of the exotic other. And uh, European girls are not the same as American girls. So Some might say they speak a different language than us. Again, this is a big chorus, a bit, uh, uh, you know, another catchy chorus. There's keyboards in it, and I really like the line because her parents are still away, uh, you know, when talking about, you know, going over and doing her in their bed because her parents are still not home. Um, it's got a keyboard solo. Again, it, it's not super amazing to me. It doesn't, like, stand out as one of my favorites on the album, but it, it's still a pretty good song. And I like, you know, I like... It's another Gene Cock rock song, but it's still, it's good. 
it's again a, a sophisticated, you know, Gene Simmons cock rock song in a way. But at the same time, too, there were concepts, you know, that were being introduced to me as the ten year old kid that I I just couldn't get you know my head around. I thought, what is he singing about here? I, I you know, it's, it almost seems so adult, and not in like you know, an X rated kind of way, but like in a mature kind of way. Like, what is the subject matter here? I, you know, <laughs> it was different than what I was used to. Um, you know, and I may have not as well read as, you know, some of you know, my friends and relatives, but at the same time, too, I just thought, wow, it just seems like a different band. And I didn't really get where they're going with this song. But then again, now that I think about it, you know, maybe this was all along a plan to, you know, only play shows from 79 in the U.S. and then go to Europe, you know, she's so European and other other markets, and, you know, write a song that might be well-received in, in those markets. I don't know. Was that intentional or was it just... Coincidental, you know, we we may never know. That's a good. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, much like we talked about, you know, rocking in the USA. You know, it was a theme. It was a thing, and they were they were obviously touring a lot in the US. So tough to, tough to say. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's some interesting things in the song lyrically too. Um, she still speaks with an accent from her week in San Tropez. Uh, I had to look up San Tropez. Apparently, that's in the French Riviera, you know. <laughs> but it's almost like he's making fun of her, right? She's so European, but, you know, she speaks with an accent from a week she spent in France. So maybe she's not really all that European. Maybe it's an affect. Uh, affectation. Yeah, that's how I took it. The, the, the girl's not European mm. at all. And that's given away by the, like, you can, they're going to her bed because her parents are still away. She strikes me as someone who's like a big, big poser. Yeah. You know, drinks. Pink champagne is a, is actually a bougie thing. It's not a, it's not, it doesn't actually show you as being sophisticated. It shows you as being wannabe sophisticated. You know what I mean? Pink champagne right. is like <laughs> what the hookers drink, not what actual famous yeah. Europeans drink. Again, probably a distinction that was lost on much of their audience at yeah, the Yeah, yeah, exactly. Time. I mean, it's the song is clever now to me, but I don't remember when I listened to this album the first time, I don't remember giving two craps about it. You know what I mean? Like really even understanding it at all. Yeah. Um the other thing that's interesting about it is uh almost as kind of a couplet to the talk about masks and disguises in Is That You? There's the line, uh, when she looks in your eyes, you see through her disguise. Again, yeah. you know, playing up the whole kiss unmasked disguise, seeing through the disguise concept that sort mm -hmm. of loosely goes throughout the album. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, neat idea. And, yeah. and John, you mentioned you know, that it is a strong chorus and that it is. You know, but if you were hearing this in a live situation, you know, you would be singing along to, you know, she's so European. Like, I, that's not like a sing-along <laughs> lyric, you know, much like shout it out loud. You know what I mean? Right, no, I mean, I, you know, art. I know. Well, that's, yeah. so, that's what was really pointed out to me in this album is that, like, yes, you take songs that are the true Kiss classics that and what makes them stand out? Well, they're simple, but they're clever. This album seems to be clever, but not particularly simple. You know what I mean? I mean, they, mm -hmm. they have these, they have big catchy choruses, but there's so much going on in the song. So it's almost like, you know, they're, they're, they can't catch lightning in a bottle. So they're going to build as much of a Faraday cage as they can 
to get as many lightning strikes as they can. I know that, you know what I mean? That's a ridiculous analogy, but do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's like they can't, no. they, they can't write deuce anymore. They can't write shout it out loud anymore. Um, well, they're not a hungry, they're not a hungry band. They're not right, living yeah, exactly. on the streets of New York. Um, yeah. And, and that reminds me, there's a, a book that's coming out, I think, in early December called They Just Seem a Little Weird um, that's, that takes a look at Kiss and Aerosmith and Cheap Trick and Stars. Uh, and it's written by one of the guys that was um, a writer for Spin, I think, maybe the editor for Spin. Um, and one of the quotes from the book, I read a small excerpt, is Kiss is a band that is made up of smart guys who write stupid music for smart people. And I thought that was an interesting quote. I don't know that I necessarily agree with it, um, but I think that this is an album of smart guys writing smart music for little kids. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, okay, I'll buy that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's interesting that you said that's um I remember having this discussion with my dad about it and my dad going they always rock stars always have these stories about how they never did well in school and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's probably not very true for a lot of them because they're pretty smart people that they've become this successful. And that like just blew my mind at like 11 years old and my dad was like, "I'll bet you these guys you know, they, they probably have a couple of stories about when they got in trouble at school, but really, they probably were really good readers, and didn't talk back and, you know, really paid attention and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and I sort of picture that about and I know Paul with his stories about trying to get out of high school and all that kind of stuff. And Ace was supposedly in a gang, but I bet you they were, you know, Gene strikes me as probably a very polite, you know, kid to his teachers and all that kind of stuff, you know, and Paul probably was up until high school. So, I, you know, they seem like they're very intelligent people. Oh, yeah. I agree with you that Gene probably was that way. I think Paul has always had kind of uh, an anti-authoritarian, you know, contrarian streak in him uh -huh. where he probably you know, rebelled against some of his teachers. And there's that great story about him where he goes to try to get a job in like the local corner grocery store or something. And, uh, you know, like the guy is just about ready to hire him and he goes, Hey, you know, I think you, you, this would be a great thing for you to do in your life. And Paul says something like, you know, fuck you. I'm not doing this for my life. and just walks out, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, well, true. I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it's always struck me as these guys are, no, are, are not dopes. They're not stupid. You know what I mean? It takes at least a modicum of brains to know how to, you know, tune a guitar and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, they're not dumb. Oh, no. No, I, I think Gene and Paul are actually probably two of the smartest guys in rock and roll. You know, I, I mean, Ace may be more of a savant <laughs> yeah. I, think ace, I think ace is pretty smart he's just cursed with that horrible voice and that maniacal cackle laugh i mean that's probably what you know makes him appear to be stupid i don't think he's stupid i mean these songs are no. these songs that he's written are too clever to be stupid well, on that subject, John, Ace has always claimed to have the highest IQ of anyone in the band in terms of the original, you know, lineup. So there, there might be something to that, you know. 
But, you know, at, at the same time, too, when it gets back to the song itself, I love the fact how there's that the really high gene vocal at the end, oh, which yeah. I'm not going to try to imitate. It's like a super strong version of him doing John Lennon, but like not necessarily screaming, but singing really high, which is a really hard thing to do. But it's a, it's a, such a key uh, signature, you know, gene uh, vocal approach that I love hearing. Yeah, he's hit, he's hitting that note in his full voice, and he's not straining at all, which I, I think that's one of the things that Vinny was so good I mean, uniformly, the vocal performances on this album, I mean, are are really top notch, you know, and it may have it may have taken them some effort and some time to to get those. But, you know, especially Paul, you can really hear the strain in his voice when he's trying to hit some of the high notes on, say, Love Gun or Rock and Roll Over. But he is almost transformed his whole approach to singing by this time. And he's he's made a quantum leap forward in terms of what he's capable of vocally by the time you get to this album. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't sound like he's trying either. It doesn't sound like he's at the edge of his abilities. The fact that you know that's represented here is, you know, great great to hear. Yeah. Um all right. Easy as it seems. Well, it's got a funky little bass line. Cool little keyboard solo. I liked it. Didn't I mean nothing else really stood out for me. So, Mike, what do you think? Uh, you, know, I've always liked this song. I like you know the funky bass approach, and it seems like you know kind of an R and B feel. Um, but at the same time, too, this this song to me could work well on the 1978 uh, Paul Stanley solo album. This might be the the song yep. that has the most you know edge. Certainly, he's doing the guitar solo on this song, which is a great solo. You know, the bridge. Uh, when it goes to that sort of you know, suspended core thing, it's really just sort of an opposite uh, approach of the bridge that was used in I Was Made for Loving You. The, my favorite parts of songs sometimes are the bridge. Sometimes the bridge could stand alone as, you know, as a song. You know, Kiss always seems to come up with great bridges songs. But overall, I, I like this song. Um, to me, it's, it's a great Paul moment. And I could easily, again, see it in you know, a song on the, the 1978 Paul Stanley solo album. Yeah, um, the thing about this song, I mean... Again, lyrically, it uh, it's almost a little too clever for its own good, right? Because mm-hmm. the phrase "easy as it seems" is not an actual common phrase in the English language, right? I mean, it's it's a play on the words. It's not as easy as it seems, right? Which is yes. a common phrase in the English language, which means that it's hard. So theoretically, if something was the opposite of being not as easy as it seems, you know, it's like he's saying, why is it so seemingly easy for you to behave in this way towards me in this kind of callous, you know, destructive way where you're cheating on me or treating me with disrespect? Yeah, it's it's sort of anticlimactic in a way because the verses are so strong. You know, they're similar to like you know, wouldn't you like to know me type you know verses. Then when it gets to the chorus, you know, it's easy as it seems you know to walk away you know from your dreams, whatever you say. It's like well, it's kind of like throwing in the towel on on the chorus in a way. You know, whereas the verses come across as so you know so strong. He could have you know maybe chosen you know a stronger lyric for the for the chorus. You know, I I don't I don't get where it's going from verse to chorus, but in the last thing, it's it's a great. It's a great melody. Oh, yeah. It's a fantastic melody and a great vocal performance either way. But yeah, there's like a mismatch between the verse and the chorus on this song lyrically that, you know, I, I guess maybe could have been worked more so. 
Going on to the final Ace song of the album, Torpedo Girl. Totally ridiculous, awesome song. But I love the I love the little funky drum part. <laughs> the great bass I mean it's a great bass line and then that wanky guitar riff that he comes in with over that little punk riff. I mean it's a great song. I mean it's totally it's it's a uh, it totally I mean the, the little woo-ahs and the chorus or whatever are great. It's it's just a perfect freaking goofy song. I love it. Like it's the one that I keep humming and I, you know what I mean? It's the one I'm gonna add to my you know, driving playlist. You know what I mean. So it's it's definitely like one of my, definitely one of my favorites on the album. It's not maybe my favorite. I I didn't really think of that, which is my favorite song, but it's pretty definitely close. I mean, I love the the subject matter is clever. I mean, it's not you know, it's not Shakespeare, but it's still it's a really neat idea. And again, torpedoes, phallic symbols, blah blah blah. But still, I'll take it. I like it. Uh, yeah, I personally love it. I, you know, even just the first verse, I mean, it, it's so ace. I mean, you know, I thought I'd, you know, take a swim today. It was real hot, needed to get away, and an unknown sub down in the bay. But I, I don't care. I think I'll go swimming anyway. It's like I'm doing whatever's going on. I need some relaxation. This is where I'm going to go. And then, <laughs> and then he, all of a sudden it leads into you know, him meeting you, know, uh, you know, some beautiful girl on on the bridge. You know, could this be a dream? I don't know. But hey, he's he's gonna he's gonna go down that path. And where you know whether it was by design or you know or by choice, you know, who knows. But it also shows a great, I think, sense of humor and a cleverness to his lyric writing. Um, and also, too, that, that funky bass line, you know, if I play bass, that's probably the first song that I play, you know, or the first lick that I play on bass because it's just so great. Um, yeah. And also that riff, man, it, it is, that is a, a finger twister, man. You're, if you try to play the Aces licks in, in this song, your fingers will, you know, twist like, you know, a pretzel twist. It's so hard to do and play it that clean it's almost like country clean licks that are just you know so precise i mean he gets yeah he does not get the credit he deserves for you know his playing um you know ever and this is one of those risks where you know if you sat somebody down and said okay let's play some kiss songs you know and it's just your average you know guitar player and they're used to playing you know back in black or you know led zeppelin songs and they can do what they got to do but you know you throw some kiss songs at somebody they it stumps them they go what the hell? They, you know, they can't do it. Yeah. yeah. Again, these guys wrote great songs, wrote creative signature licks and signature riffs that are, you know, that are not really done by any other group of that era. The lyrics are great and bravo. Love it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the weirdest song on the album, both musically and lyrically. Um, you know, I don't think this is a subject matter that anybody possibly ever has written another song about, right? I mean, Ace is known as being a big World War II buff. And yeah. during World War II, there were rumors that there were German U-boats that were sighted in Hudson Bay and off Manhattan Island. And it's the kind of thing that we'll probably never know about for sure, truth being the first casualty of war. But certainly mm. the Germans did have mm. plans for uh, an aquatic invasion of New York City. Um, whether or not, and they certainly fired upon American ships within, uh, you know, sight of Manhattan. Whether or mm. not they ever put, uh, submarines that close to the bay 
possibly, but you know, it's the kind of thing that probably would have been covered up by the government to prevent mass panic. The bay's not actually that deep. It would have been pretty dangerous for them to do it, you know, so it may be apocryphal, who knows. But it's interesting to note that uh if if you know if the subject matter of the song is Ace seeing a beautiful girl, it would be a beautiful Nazi girl on the <laughs> on the deck of that submarine that he uh you know is is singing to. And of course, you make a good point, John, about the, the subject matter <laughs> being phallic. Um certainly an, another pun in terms of come on, get your feet wet, you know. These guys yeah, could, could yeah. pretty much sexualize anything, so <laughs> right. Well, it's a great, I mean, it's it's definitely an original, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's definitely, you know, I'll give it that. I mean, I like it, I love it, I think it's great. Yeah, all right. So, closing song for the album starts out as a Gene song, kind of ends as a Paul song. You're all that I want. Uh, I just said, uh, again, uh, the, the chorus is super catchy and it's got a great little guitar part to it. Like, I, like, I don't, I can't even explain, like a nice little chugging guitar part in it that, you know, stands out to me. The way that the, the way that it's like rhythmically uh, played, I guess, the rhythm and the guitar, I guess. Yeah. It's just a great, you know, chordy you know, riff that, you know, it, it's strong as all hell. Lyrically, though, they seem to have gone in a different direction. I mean, we mentioned there's living sort of a jet life and dating, you know, actresses, you know, you name it, models, whatever it is. It's, it's, it's definitely a stretch from, you know, like, you know, being in the, the sort of, you know, the, the driver's seat of, you know, pursuing, you know, relationships or females or, you know, whatever you want to pursue to being like you know you're the only one i've ever dreamed of and it's it's almost like a sort of like a, a love letter in a way this song too um apparently was supposedly demoed around the time of uh kiss writing songs like love gun so lyrically you know if, they, if you know there was that sort of maturity uh, in their songwriting approach around that time you know granted it didn't come out until three years later um, you know, I, it, it's to me, it's a great song overall. I love the fact that, that David mentioned it's like a, it's a Gene song, but it sort of turns into Paul's song because you got those great Paul Stanley vocals at the end. Um, you know, that just you know, you know, bring it you know all around, and you know, it's always great to hear you know Gene and Paul doing that sort of co-vocal thing, anyways. Um, and apparently, it was you know a strong enough track uh, to be played on the Unmasked tour, I guess, from the beginning of the tour up until about the time they wrapped up their. Uh, the length of the tour in England, and then they, they stopped playing the song. And it sounded great. Yeah. It sounded great live. It sure did. It's interesting, if you listen to the demo for this song, uh, the verses, the arrangement for the verses sort of changed. The melody changed a little, and that riff that, that you just played, that kind of signature riff in the verses, wasn't actually there. Yeah. All right, so that pretty much wraps it up. I think we've kind of already talked about, in general, the the impact of the album. Uh, and, you know, I mean, there wasn't a lot of merchandise with this album. Um, you know, you the album itself came with a poster that had, I guess, the second to last panel as a big poster, um, the, the reveal, if you will. Um, there was, um, like, bubble bubblegum pops or whatever it was called, <laughs> where they, they released, like, small little album covers that had a, 
um, record disc shaped piece of bubble gum in them. And uh, totally so, had that piece. I totally remember buying it at E and J Markets on Mellon Street. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I don't remember seeing any posters or T-shirts at the time that this thing came out just for Unmasked. No, it was pretty much you know clearing out the warehouse of you know Live Two Tour and uh, Dynasty Tour T-shirts. And whatever else they had in terms of belt buckles and necklaces and stuff. You know, the only new things were, you know, they mentioned it because you got, there was an insert that, you know, colluded an, an order form for merchandise. And at the bottom, you know, they listed uh, the Gene Simmons Axe Bass and the Paul Stanley Ibanez uh, PS10 guitar. Mm. You know, but, you know, I don't know anybody at the time because I swear to God there was a version of that order form that listed the prices for those instruments. And I, I want to say that at the time, the Paul Stanley guitar was nine hundred dollars, and I don't know anybody that I was growing up with in you know in Swissville, Pennsylvania, that had nine hundred dollars for a guitar. <laughs> but damn, if we didn't want that guitar and, and wish we could have bought it. But the, you know, nonetheless, I mean, it's not unlike anything that they've released you know later in terms of merchandise. Like it's always just slightly out of reach of you know the average Kiss fan. But damn, if they're not going to work uh, their asses off to try to get it. Um, yeah, but I agree. It's it's definitely sort of you know you know, old stock merchandise that they were selling through uh, the Kiss Army Warehouse. And anything new would have had to have had you know, the new drummer on, on any images when it comes to T-shirts and programs. So it was a transitional phase. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess they made the best of it by trying to clear out the warehouse of what they had. Yeah. And the album did eventually go gold in the United States. So, I mean, it wasn't wasn't a complete disaster, but, you know, it it, it didn't sell as well as Dynasty. So... And Dynasty didn't sell as well as the albums before, uh, you know. That so, you know, <laughs> we start to see the the decline here. Yeah, but you know, at the same time, you know, they've always mentioned that you know how expensive and costly it is to you know, to tour overseas, and that's pretty much what they did in terms of tour support for this record. So, obviously, Casablanca, you know, if it was Polygram, I don't think it was Polygram at that time. You know, they obviously had, you know, some backing to go over and do that. And that's not, and you know, they're basically taking the Dynasty Tour show overseas, which was a big show. So somehow, you know, they made the best of it, but I still question, you know, could you guys do at least a few dates in the U.S.? Yes. You know, come on, you know, give us the, you know, just a taste of what's going on here, guys. But, you know, what are you going to do? It, was, it wasn't meant to be. Right. I mean, we did get a little TV stuff. We got the Kids Are People too thing with the introduction of Eric Carr. They were on the cover of People magazine with Eric Carr, so you know. But it was less tied into the Unmasked album than here's a new member of the band. Um, you know, listening. There's a, this interview that uh, was done at the time of Unmasked before they announced uh, Eric Carr, and Gene's talking about uh, what Kiss has planned, and listening to him, you really start to understand how lost they were at this point in terms of what they should be doing, because he talks about Kiss World, the traveling amusement park that they were going to do. And, you know, he says, oh, you're going to walk in the entrance. You're going to walk through the mouths of all of our faces. And then we're going to have everything from like balloon rides. And, you know, I'm thinking, really? Balloon rides? A Kiss <laughs> balloon ride? Like what? I, You know, and then they, she, the interviewer asks him about um, they were going to have remote-controlled robots uh, as part of the stage show, right? And mm -hmm. he says, yeah, we're going to have like three and a half, four-foot-high um, 
automaton robots and maybe they'll come out and they'll play one song and then we'll come out and we'll play in you know i think that'd be kind of cool and i'm thinking to myself really that seems right. like <laughs> that, why would anybody want to see that it just seems like a terrible idea well think about this guys um pink floyd the wall when they toured for that record which they only did a handful of shows um you know Basically, the first song wasn't Pink Floyd. It was basically, you know, a bunch of techs or roadies, you know, performing Pink Floyd's you know, opening song, which I think was In the Flesh uh, from the, the, the Wall album. And then the real Pink Floyd sort of appeared. So Kiss wasn't, you know, too far off in terms of that approach. How that would have tied into Unmasked, I don't know, you know. That's interesting. I hadn't even heard, ever heard that story about Pink Floyd. Yeah. I didn't yeah. Know that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. So... We did some homework, right? We each came up with, uh, we were challenged by you, Mike, to come up with <laughs> one album made up of all the tracks on the Kiss solo albums. So who wants to go first? What'd you guys come up with? Uh, I got, well, I got 10 songs. I, I said I had to limit myself to 10, even though some of these albums have 11 or 12, but I figured 10 was it. Yeah. So I figure it's got to open with Radioactive. Okay. Uh, and then go into uh, Rip It Out. Okay. Then um, into Hooked on Rock and Roll, even though I usually you should probably save your third song for your hit. But I would say the fourth song, which is normally your hit, is New York Groove. Okay. Um, then I would go to... Um, to did I say, uh, Ozone? Okay. Uh, Man of a Thousand Faces. Uh-huh. Uh, Hooked on Rock and Roll, Love and Chains, and then uh, Fractured Mirror. Did you say Hooked on Rock and Roll twice? No, did I? I don't know. No, I meant Sugar the Pop of Light. Sorry, that one. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And then it closes with Fractured Mirror. So I got four from Aces and only, uh, I think, I took two from Peters, which I was surprised at. Okay. But the more I listened to it, the more I was like, well, that's not bad. So go ahead. All right. What do you got, Dave? All right. Well, I'll just say, I think uh, we chose four of the same songs. I'll just say that. Um, okay. So, so mine. Wow. Only four. Only four. Yeah. yeah wow. All right. All right so, so mine will would kick off with Tonight You Belong to Me. Because okay. I, that to me is the best opener of all the solo album songs. And it's kind of the same way that they open Rock and Roll Over with I Want You. You know, I think okay. it, could, it could have that same place. Um, then going into Tunnel of Love, I went with that one because I think it's the most Kiss-like of the, of the Gene songs. You know, the, the female version of Love Gun, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> and it's got that kind of vaguely menacing sort of bass line. Uh, that I think works in a KISS context. Um, then going into New York Groove, keeping with your theory is we want the hit to be the third song on the album when people are listening. Uh, going into Wouldn't You Like to Know Me, right? Because uh, great, catchy Paul song. Uh, then going into the fifth song, Man of a Thousand Faces. Ends there. Uh, then Rip It Out because that is the next like great album opener. So that would kick off side two. Oh, uh, Radioactive, again, you know, that's one that we both chose. Snowblind, because I think that's uh, a great uh, 
a great Ace song. I Can't Stop the Rain, the penultimate ballad, sort of taking the place of Beth. And then mm. Goodbye. I mean, that's obviously the song you want to end the album with, right? Goodbye. Right, okay. Wow. It's funny, it, it, we, we all picked, you know, in a lot of ways, a lot of the same songs. Um, you know, and I'll just go through my list. I, I started off with Tonight You Belong to Me, great opener. Um, I chose as, as the second track, uh, Radioactive. Uh, just because, you know, to me, if that's G, I looked at it as, you know, from, the, you know, the structure of how they were approaching their solo albums and how they work as one, you know, album by the, the complete unit. Um, and that following that, I, I chose Rip It Out as the next track. Uh, and then hooked on hooked on rock and roll, and then burning burning up with fever, just because it, it seemed like you know very kiss like track to include on the record, and I approached it as okay this is side one then my side one closer would have been again you know take me away together as one, mm. yeah and okay then, then I would open side two with New York groove, uh, and then follow with a Peter Chris song that's the kind of sugar papa likes, um, and also. Uh, uh, Dave, I think you chose a ton of love. I think that's a great Gene song that would work on on any Kiss record. Um, and then I went with the ballad "I Can't Stop the Rain" from Peter Chris. And then I, you know, I wanted to find a way to, to close the record with "Fractured Mirror." So then I went "I Can't Stop the Rain" into "Goodbye," and then closed the record with the "Fractured Mirror." So okay. granted, that's twelve that's twelve songs, um, but you know, I thought, well, if you're going to try to do this, try to you know keep it even, give you know, three songs from each of the four guys, and see how that goes. Proper therapy, Mike. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Fair play is Mike's right. Yeah, you know, it's all politics and bands, you know. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Gotta keep your right. Everybody gets a song. But you know, to that point though, and now we can wrap up the the, the unmasked discussion this way. Um, you know, you've got Peter Chris all over the marketing, you know, in the videos and, and the album cover, and there isn't one Peter Chris song on Unmasked. And that was something that I didn't really pick up on until recently. Like, whoa, okay, here's the first time. You know, I mean, there was obviously no attempt you know, to get Peter on that record at all, whether he playing drums or, you know, songwriting wise. Yeah. But the three Ace songs. Yeah. And they're all great. Yeah. yeah, it it's interesting. I mean, that you know, as much as Ace talks about how he felt frustrated being in Kiss, Gene and Paul did seem to open up to the, to him having, you know, three songs on an album for two albums in a row. So yeah, you know, they were you know he was doing good stuff, and they were certainly open to it. Um, and that was true right up until the next album that came out, which is maybe the most interesting Kiss album ever, Music from the Elder. And I am so looking forward to talking about this album. Uh, I I can't wait. I think we might need three hours. <laughs> I think right. you're right. There's a lot to delve into. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to that one big time. Me too. Pleasure talking with you guys. As always, I will talk to you next week. All right. Sounds good, guys. Take, Take care. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye.